The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And it's been a lot of fun stuff going on tech in technology, as always. Uh, it was the 15th anniversary of the iPhone. And we'll talk about why that changed the landscape in tech and why the iPhone presence gave huge power to big tech. Uh, this week, we're going to feature uh, one of the co-founders of Ethereum, Gavin James Wood. He's also the creator of Polkadot and Kusama, as well as the Web3 Foundation. And in observations, we'll talk a bit about Web3, whether it's uh, real or whether it's a hoax. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc and Andrew, I came across a story about an electric car that does crypto mining. This guy's using the battery in his Tesla to power the graphical processing units to do crypto mining. Uh, Saraj Raval said his Tesla Model 3 mines Bitcoin and Ethereum for around 20 hours a day. He called the car a computer on wheels. He said he makes between $400 and $800 a month. Uh, as ridiculous as it might sound, is is this the future of electric vehicles? What do you think, Doc? All the best. Your faithful listener, Bob. Well, Bob, actually, if you have to pay for the electricity, it doesn't work. It turns out this guy was grandfathered in on one of the first Teslas where you can go to the charging station free of charge. So he's getting free electricity. And if you get free electricity, uh, you could make money doing that. But uh, uh, for anybody else that's got to pay at the charging station, it's not going to work. We got an email from Kevin in Gainesville. Dear Tech Talk, I'm having trouble charging my iPhone. I think the charging port is dirty. What are my options, Kevin in Gainesville? Well, the charging port at the bottom of your iPhone uh, is called the lightning connector. It's been around since 2012. Now, if you try to insert a lightning cable in the connection and it seems flaky um, or it won't insert all the way or it's, uh, you know, unreliable, uh, the problem could either be the cable itself or the lightning port of your phone. Now, just get another cable, a new cable that, you know, works, plug it into the iPhone and see whether uh, the new cable fixes the problem. If it does, then the problem is your... Uh, is your old cable. Now, if you look at the contacts on the old cable, usually they get dirty. They're, uh, usually, I mean, when I've, when I've got, uh, the, the one I travel with a lot, 
normally uh, I might see one of the uh, one of the contacts a little bit dark uh, and over time. And so especially if you take it around, uh, you know, around the beach, or around salt water. So you can just get uh, an eraser. And you can uh, and you can erase those contacts on the uh, on the cable. Now you're talking it, about a pencil eraser, right? You're just a, a regular pencil old. Eraser. We're ta- we're using some 20th century technology again to fix a 21st yeah, century problem. Pencil. And and you and you know that the, the trouble is, Andrew. I don't have pencil erasers around anymore. I mean, I don't have pencils anymore. So I I, I had to go uh, actually and buy an eraser. <laughs> wow. <laughs> to try this out because I just you know. They're, they're so obsolete now in a way. So, so you can clean that with, a, you know, just erase it off. Now, if, if it's inside the, uh, the iPhone, it's a little bit more problematic. Now, now the thing with the iPhones is, is, that, that, is you get lint buildup. It's sort of like lint buildup in your belly button in a way. Just over time, you just get lint in that. And you want to be able to pull it out. Now, the best way to pull it out is with a toothpick. Now, don't use anything that's metal because you'll really damage it when you go down there. Uh, don't use compressed air to blow it out. Uh, there was some guy that used compressed air, and they blew all the dirt under the screen. <laughs> Whoa. And uh, then the, you know, they were that, I mean, the, the contact you know, was clean, but then they, they had all this dirt under the screen, and they had to take apart their iPhone to get that dirt out. So don't use compressed air. But if you get a toothpick, I, I did this yesterday because I thought I'd try it out. And you just sort of gently push it in and just sort of scoop it. You don't want to push it on either side too much because you don't want to damage the content. And you can, kind of, if there's any lint in there, you can kind of scoop it out. I went in mine. I just thought I would test it out yesterday before I talked about it. And mine, I didn't have any trouble with it, but I did scoop out a little bit of lint. So uh, now if that doesn't work, you can take your iPhone into the Apple store and they will, um, they will clean it. They'll take it apart. They'll clean it for you, but you'll have to pay for that. Uh, or uh, you could, you, if, if your phone is, is one of the newer versions, you could use magnetic charging. But, uh, but I, think this, I think this toothpick thing works pretty well. Well, the other thing, though, you sort of mentioned it briefly, but the idea that the cable itself could be broken on the inside. I've had this happen with a few of my cables over the years where there's the hard plastic bit where the lightning, you know, actual port is. And, and so that area is very – the wires underneath the plastic are uh, actually rather uh, vulnerable at that point where it meets the hard part. And if you bend it too much somewhere it accidentally – um, or you're or carrying it around and it gets bent. It could get the wires can get broken or so you know or can get sort of loose. As so over time, so that's the thing you always want to check too is the cable itself. Is it intact? Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, I did have one cable. Once you sort of turn it a little bit, it would work. And right, exactly. Turn another way and and it I live with that for a long a... time, so I can put off a trip, you know, to the Apple store. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've done that. So... And Apple charges so much for their cables. Ooh, they I mean, do. They're really overpriced. However, so. I have to tell you something. The one meter long and the two meter long are the same price. So you get a lot of cable for free if you just get the two meter long. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's the same price. I didn't know that. Last time I went to the store, it was the same price. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. We got an email from Jessica in Ashburn. Dear Tech Talk, my daughter started college this fall and she's living on campus. When she, when she got her dorm assignment, they also gave her a list of rules. Now, one of the rules is she cannot use her own router in the dorm room. Uh, they told her that she has to use the campus Wi-Fi instead of the private router because it could cause problems on the school network. Why is that? Doesn't make sense to me, Jessica in Ashburn. Well, uh, Jessica, I mean, this, this 
if you this does make sense actually, and let me explain why. Can you imagine if every student had a different router in their in their uh, dorm room? There would be so many router signals there, and they all basically interfere with each other because they're all you know they're either two point four gigahertz or five gigahertz. And so they all would share the bandwidth space, and that is a huge problem. So you really just want to have uh, a single Wi-Fi router in the dorm. Otherwise, you are going to interfere with everyone. Now, uh, now the school also, that, but even, if, even if you turn off the Wi-Fi portion, the school doesn't want you to have your own router because if you misconfigure your router, uh, it could actually, uh, you know, interfere with the network. So I, I really do uh, understand that the IT department at most schools pretty good, and and they'll they'll keep the they'll keep the network secure. I know when my when Rich, my son, went to went to school, um, he he hated the fact that that he you know had to use the the school network, and they they charge a tech fee. So if he's on the school network there in the dorm, they would charge him like you know, a hundred dollars a semester. And, um, and what they would do is they would, um, um, they would take the Mac address of your device and they would register it. They used Mac address filtering where they would only allow the computers with the hardware address. Well, see, the, the problem is I taught rich too much. I mean, y- you can actually change the Mac address, uh, on your, on your device. Um, you can go in there and you can, you, you can basically change your Mac address. So rich would just, Sniff the network, find a MAC address that was there, and then uh, and, and write down a few MAC addresses, and then he would uh, just simply uh, spoof the MAC address, and he would get on the network. I didn't really approve that, but <laughs> but but you know, there's just something about beating the system. <laughs> what about using VPNs? Are they necessary or not? You know, usually when you're doing a shared network, you always talk about using VPNs. Um, but in this case, you're saying that the networks pretty much are presumed to be safe. Well, I, I mean, as, they're as safe as any as any network. Now, if you now if you're going to do banking, uh-huh. uh huh, I'd, I'd use a VPN. You would anyway. Yes, yeah, okay. I would still use a VPN. Um, just just because you don't want people to sniff out what's going on. Now, now the good news is most like most of the banking websites are now secure socket layer HTTPS. So uh, so it is still encrypted, but. But uh, but a VPN is is really pretty good. If you, but if you're just uploading your papers and doing normal academic stuff, and I don't I don't think it's worth it uh, to, to use the VPN because who's I mean who's gonna hack to get a copy of your term paper or something? I just I just don't think that would make uh, that would make sense. But when I tell you when I travel, when I travel, especially in uh, in Europe I, uh, or anywhere in the world, I always use a VPN because the best place to hack. Uh, business executives is in uh, is in hotel Wi-Fi's and and there are just a lot of people out there doing that. So whenever I travel, I'm always always using a VPN. We got an email from John in Arlington. Dear Tech Talk, I've got an old Android tablet sitting on the shelf. Can I use it for a digital picture frame, John in Arlington? Well, John, most people usually have an old tablet sitting around. I mean, I've got a couple of them here. Chances are they're they're still they still work fine. They're just slow for your normal apps. But you can easily turn these unlo- unused working tablets into a digital picture frame. Now you can go to the um, you can go to the Google Play Store, and there are a number of apps that turn it into a digital picture frame. And um, 
and then uh, and these apps will actually they will uh, they will read uh, pictures that are that are on the on the web. They you, you you might store them on the cloud, and you can direct them to read the pictures from the web. So you could give that digital picture frame, say, to uh, to, to to your grandmother or somebody in the family, an older adult. And, uh, and you could set that digital picture frame up and you could, you could rotate the pictures by simply changing, changing the pictures that are in the cloud. It's really a great way to, to share pictures with people who are not tech savvy. By the way, if you've got, if you've got an iPad, the same thing, you can, uh, you can actually, uh, you can download digital picture frame apps that will read pictures off the web. Or if you just want to, use rotate through the pictures that are that are on the iPad itself and not have this cloud reading ability you can just use the gallery feature of the photo app and it will just go through the pictures but this is really a great application and uh, and I think you could give some real added value to somebody who wanted to see what your pictures but now if your slideshow is linked to the cloud you would have to have a Wi-Fi connection right I mean you would yeah, have to be that's right You'd you would have, have to, have to be on all the time and, but you could do it remotely, right? So if grandma's far away and you could actually change it for her remotely or not? Yeah. Well, you can't change the, you can't operate the device remotely, but you can change the pictures in the iCloud. That's what I mean. Remotely. You could change the slideshow. Yeah. You, you can it. update the, the slideshow. With the iCloud on. Yeah. You can just up. Yeah. You, you go on a new trip. You just upload more pictures to the, uh, to, to, to the, to the account, to the account that this, tablet is getting its pictures from and and you can and you'll just have a new slideshow That's i mean I, cool. I think it's a great way to share pictures an instant postcard you know it's an instant postcard and this is for people that just you know using the internet just a big project so you but but they would have to be on the internet but the good thing is these tablets once you log them into the internet if you know they'll pretty much stay there what won't be any any big problem uh, we got an email from Alex in uh, Richmond. Dear Doc and Andrew, last week I was stuck in a hotel room with a weak uh, Wi-Fi signal. It was terrible. I guess he was I stuck was... in the uh, big snowstorm then. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm imagining if he was stuck uh, for a, 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 in, in a room in Richmond last week. So yeah, I'm thinking that that's what be, happened to him. But I'm just guessing. That would be the, the pitch. Yeah. Well, you know, what happens in these hotels, uh, you know, some of the uh, better hotels will have a, a Wi-Fi access point in every room, uh, but other ones will just put it in the hallway. And then if you're kind of far from it, then you've got a weak signal. But almost every hotel that has Wi-Fi, they'll have an Ethernet port, an RJ45 jack, that's Ethernet. And that's wired into the, um, into the uh, hotel, um, hotel um, network. And um, now, like I always carry an Ethernet cable with me. And in fact, if I can use Ethernet, I'll just plug into the Ethernet because now I'm bypassing the whole Wi-Fi completely. Yeah. Yes, and much so, more secure. Yeah, so it's so I feel like it's a little bit more secure, but I still use a VPN. Uh -huh. Now, if, if if you're there at the hotel and you don't you don't have an Ethernet cable. Most hotels have Ethernet cables at the front desk. Now, that's a surprise to me. I mean, so now you can get your shampoo and your comb because you forgot a comb or a razor and an Ethernet cable. That's and an nice. Ethernet cable, that's yeah. They, uh, almost all of them have them uh, because, well, people leave their Ethernet cables. and they, But they always have a few there, especially if there's an RJ45 jack in the room. They always, they always have a few there. Now, you can, now if, you wanna, if you're just dead set on using Wi-Fi, you can move your laptop around the different parts of the room to see if you could get a better signal. 
you could uh, you could take your laptop out into the hallway uh, and probably you'll get a signal out there. You could also take your laptop down to the business center if you had to do that. Uh, and um, now what I have done, uh, you know, I was up in uh, Wisconsin in a hotel that they just had terrible Wi-Fi. But I had pretty good cellular connection, so I actually set up the hotspot on my cell phone. And then I uh, connected my laptop to my cell phone hotspot. And that worked pretty well, except except I just had bigger data charges than usual. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You still end up paying for it one way or the other. Yeah, yeah but, that, but that did work. That did work pretty well. So I always have my 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 hotspot with me. I mean, that actually works in the car. Like if you've got to do some work on your laptop in the car and you need an internet connection in the car, you can set up your hotspot with your cell phone and you can just plug right along and do your work in the car and be connected to the internet. <laughs> that also works pretty well. So anyway, uh, but you know, also, also, Alex, you know, if you don't have internet in your hotel room, maybe you could just enjoy yourself and watch a movie <laughs> and just accept the fact that you don't have internet. Really, take a day off from your usual computer business. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just just uh, unplug. Unplug. And, uh, and, unplug. En- and enjoy the moment. I, that's that, true, I too. That, I think, might be that's, the best. That's option. very good lifestyle advice, doctor. <laughs> yeah, it, I think it is. Uh, listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk.com at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Yes, we will. And uh, what we'll do next is uh, find out uh, about uh, Gavin James Wood, the English computer scientist who co-founded Ethereum, but he's done so much more, and he's generally working on a new kind of web, would be Web 3.0. What does that even mean? We'll find out in a moment on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature James, or rather, Gavin James Wood. He's an English computer scientist. He's co-founder of Ethereum, one of the eight co-founders, and the creator of Polkadot, 
which would be the next generation blockchain, and Kusama, which is a test network for blockchain, as well as creator and founder of the Web3 Foundation. Lancaster was born, uh, <laughs> Wood was born in Lancaster, England, in, the, in, the, uh, in, uh, in April of 1980. Now, since his childhood, uh, economics and game theory have always interested him. He even co-published a strategy game of his own design. He's behind the Milton Keynes board game, Fractal Playground. He attended the Lancaster Royal Grammar School and graduated from the University of York with a master's degree in computer science and software engineering in 2002. He taught fractals. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, the game he wrote was about fractals. He taught fractals and art to kids in school in Italy while he was in graduate school. He completed his PhD entitled Content-Based Visualizations to Aid Common Navigation of Musical Audio in 2005. He was really into the visualization of audio. Now, he first read about Bitcoin in 2011, uh, and he was largely uninterested. Uh, it, 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 it focused, he felt, too much on the currency aspect rather than on the technology. However, he revisited again in early 2013, and he began to realize the new possibilities were opening up in the fields of, uh, of information theory, computers, and technology, as well as game theory. And he felt that this would inevitably change the world. Now, prior to developing uh, Ethereum, he consulted for Microsoft Research on the technical aspect of embedded domain-specific languages. He designed and implemented the first truly smart lighting controller for one of London's top nightclubs. He designed and implemented most of the world's first, first C++ language workbench and built software systems for Ox Legal, a smart text contract editor for lawyers. Now, a mutual friend introduced him to Vitalik Buterin uh, in, uh, in 2013. And uh, since he met Vitalik, blockchain and crypto has dominated his life. Now, Vitalik had just written the white paper on Ethereum where he was outlining why you'd want to put a scripting language on top of a blockchain to extend it beyond what Bitcoin could do. And... Um, and James and, and Gavin Wood thought, well, you know, this looks like an interesting project. I'm, 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 a, I'm up for a, a side gig. So, so he started working with Vitalik on, on Ethereum, and he was one of the eight co-founders, along with Charles Hoskinson and, uh, and others. Now, actually, Gavin Wood coded the first functional Ethereum client in January 2014, and released the first proof of concept. He was the guy who actually took uh, Vitalik's white paper and turned it into code. Well, now I want to know what the other seven co-founders were doing while he was actually doing all the work. Yeah, well, there, there's a lot of, uh, yeah. He was, <laughs> he was actually the workhorse. Uh, you know, I was wondering that, too. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they were playing that board game, Fractal Playground. Yeah, they, they're uh, off in the well, coffee room. There, there's actually a lot of politics with this. They've got to go uh -huh. to conferences and talk to people. Well, that's true. You, you, you've got to sell the concept. Yes. 
So it's um, I, I I I think this is a case. Remember we talked about the uh, showman, the showman and, the and the nerd. Yeah, yeah. I, I think in the case uh, of the Ethereum group, he was the nerd who was in the back room coding it all up. Yeah. And, and you had all the other skill sets necessary to launch it. Um, now he authored a, uh, a a a yellow paper on Ethereum, uh, which was the first formal specification of any blockchain protocol, and it was one of the key ways that Ethereum distinguished itself from the other blockchain-based systems. He actually, very detailed way, laid out the specifications of the code that he wrote for Ethereum. Doc, is that a normal term, yellow paper? Like there's a white paper, which always is about the concept itself. It's the first introduction to the world of, of, of this concept. And what's a yellow paper? Is that a common term or did, did he Actually, sort of coin that? I, I, I'd never seen that before. Me neither. Okay. I'd never seen yellow paper before. I guess he was distinguishing it because Vitalik wrote a white paper on Ethereum. Yeah. So I guess he says, well, the white paper's already been written. It's like... Sort of, okay, you can only be married once, so now well, this will be a yellow paper. And you have to be old <laughs> enough to think about yellow paper being used in real life um, for calculations and stuff. That would be the sort of paper you'd carry around with you to do, like, note-taking. And, you know, white paper is like you're, when you're formally, you know, putting a paper, handing a paper to your professor. But yellow paper would be the kind of note paper that you might work on uh, problems yeah, with. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe so it's a working paper. Yeah, it's yeah. a working paper, it, yeah. It it. it so he, he uh, designed most of the protocol, including the Ethereum uh, virtual machine. He also, uh, the, the, the way you pay, the, pay for using the network is gas. He, you know, the whole, the whole analogy of gas, how the, uh, how the validators get paid, you know, the whole business model behind Ethereum. He, he worked the whole thing out. He conceived and invented much what would become the Ethereum technology stack, including the contract language that was sitting on top of it, solid solidity. He, he designed that contract. He was, a, he was a language guy. He did the remote procedure call interface. Uh, he also did the whisper and swarm protocols. Now, whisper is a decentralized communication protocol. You can whisper to somebody and other people can't hear it. And swarm is a decentralized storage platform. And so he wrote the Whisper and Storm protocols because he felt that we needed to communicate securely. This is really the core of his beliefs. He also liked the idea of having distributed storage. And so he wrote the protocols that support distributed storage. What does that mean, distributed storage, though? That, so that means you keep your stuff in, on your own computer. You're responsible for where you put it? Well, it's, it's sort of well, – you, you remember the old Napster where you would like – you know, you could download songs from the internet. Yes. And if you were, if you had an apps Napster client, uh, they would actually store some of those songs on your computer. Right. And and so then, if you would, uh, if you would want to find a song, it would it would loc it, it would locate the nearest server to you that had that song, and you would download it from that peer. And so basically, the entire Napster. Um, um, servers were distributed there was no central server that's how napster thought they could get away get around copyright protection because there was no central server to shut down it was all peer to peer and the entire uh, repository of songs was stored on all the people who wanted to participate in napster who had to agree to to allocate some of their storage to help the overall network 
So, um, so distributed storage did work in the case of Napster, and he's hoping that it will work in the case of blockchain. Now, his original ideas on a decentralized web, and we're already getting to, you can see his thinking, because he, he came up with the, uh, the, the Whisper protocol for, for secure communication, the Swarm protocol for distributed, uh, uh, distributed storage. He, he, he sort of came up with this original idea of a decentralized system back in 2013, but his first post in the blog was uh, April of 2014, and then later on he did a less techie version. Now, he was, as you would expect, the first chief technology officer at Ethereum because he wrote the code. Now, in 2016, uh, he left Ethereum. This is after he'd only been there two years. He left. He left about the same, the same time that uh, Hawkinson left. And, um, and Hoskinson uh, went on to found Cardano. He, he went on to found yeah, Cardano. Yet another now, now, the reason he left yeah. is that he felt that the Ethereum platform was flawed. I mean, I mean, he, he wrote the code. And, but it was like, and, and when he wrote the code, he said, I'm going to write a, uh, this is going to be a general purpose computer for the world. So it was a, a very complex, uh, smart uh, contract language sitting on top of the blockchain. And, uh, <clears throat> the, and it was extremely secure. And so what, what happened was this, uh, this particular network, because there was so much processing that was required to validate this, this smart contract layer, it was just slow. And, uh, and, and, and not really everybody needed, uh, needed a smart contract. So he decided to leave Ethereum and, and, and work on, an, on a new and improved concept for blockchain. Now, part of the problem that, I mean, Vitalik Buterin, he's like what they call the benevolent dictator. So if he doesn't agree with you, you, you just have to pound sand. So if you have a different concept that you want to, um, you, 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 you want to explore, you know, you, you have to leave Ethereum. So that's, that's why a lot of the founders left, because they, they wanted to try something new. So, so he left uh, and he, in 2016, and he founded Parity Technologies to develop a client for Ethereum networks and create software for companies using blockchain. Uh, and he, um, uh, and he, he did that with the Huda Steiner, who previously worked at the Ethereum Foundation. Now, they released a parity Ethereum software client in early 2016. Now, <clears throat> but he, he actually wanted to see uh, what he could do uh, to really make the the web a better place using blockchain technology. So he founded the Web3 Foundation. It's a nonprofit focused on decentralizing the inner infrastructure and technology of the internet. And they started with, uh, with a Web3 uh, blockchain called Polkadot. Now, his motivation here, if you, if you go back and look at his videos on the Web3 Foundation website, he was... Uh, when Edward Snowden uh, released all of his uh, papers about government spying and the fact that the government had uh, basically uh, made arrangements with companies to, to have access to the back door of their data, and the government was using that data uh, as they wished without permission, maybe in violation of the law, 
uh, and this was just not the U.S., this was around the world, he felt violated as a tech guy, and he wanted to try to fix that. In addition, you had, uh, you, you had this trend uh, where we had what they call data slavery, where, where all these big tech companies have your data, and they sell that data to other people, and you got no control over it. They own your data, even though it's your data. Your data is enslaved to them. So then he was affected by, you know, the data slavery that big tech has and how the desire to advertise using the enslaved data uh, was, was corrupting everything that was good on the Internet. So then he wanted to focus on a Web3 foundation. Now, the mission is to nurture cutting-edge applications for a decentralized web software protocol. Now, when he's saying decentralized, he means everybody is on the web, just like Napster, and, and you share your storage with this giant web computer, and, uh, and all, everything is stored in a distributed way around the world, and there is no centralized server like at Facebook, and everybody owns their own data. That's the, that, that, was the, that was the key. Everybody owns their own data, they own their own identity, they own their own destiny on the web. That's his vision. And if this is built on an infrastructure of a blockchain, it allows for micropayments, which, which would just be, um, uh, it, it'll probably be almost transparent to the user by the time it's implemented. And so if somebody wants to use your data, uh, they just give you 10 cents or whatever, whatever the the value is of the data they want to use. And you can then sell your data if you wish to companies and there's a mechanism to pay for it. So you own the data, you could keep your data, you could sell your data, what, you, you, you do whatever you want with it. So he, he basically wanted to d develop that kind of system. Now, Polkadot is the, is the protocol that they, that they began using. Now, what he realized with Ethereum is that uh, is that uh, Ethereum like was one blockchain for all? They had this very complex scripting language on top, and um, and it, it forced it to run slow. It was also on a proof of work network like Bitcoin, which which is slow in of itself. And they're gradually moving to proof of stake, which would be faster for validation. But but it was one blockchain for all. And he said, look, he says you might have a supply chain blockchain that doesn't need smart contracts. You don't need smart contracts all the time. So why have this all this overhead associated with managing smart contract infrastructure if, if you don't need it? So he said, look, we, we have to allow many blockchains to survive. It doesn't make sense to have one blockchain for the world, like Ethereum, like their goal, one blockchain for the world. He said, we need many blockchains, uh, and we, we, we need to create a, an environment where many blockchains can prosper and work. So he created Polkadot as a framework for blockchains to be functioning in. So all the validation is done. The, the blocks, the different blockchains could communicate with each other, but you could have totally different blockchains, and they have about 100 slots in Polkadot now. So you could run Ethereum within Polkadot in one of the slots, for instance. And if Ethereum is the best, uh, the, you know, the best uh, blockchain out there, it will win. So he wanted to see a hundred different experiments for different kinds of blockchains to see how they would, uh, see how they would go. And so he developed Polkadot and, um, and he's created a lot of excitement there. And now people are 
putting blockchains into Polkadot. Now, now the DOT is, is their cryptocurrency, and it's a proof of stake. So of all the DOTs that have been issued by Polkadot, 75% are used to stake the validators. So if you're a validator, you've got to put up so, much, so many DOTs, so much money to have the right to validate, and then you're paid for your validation. And you don't compete for the validation like with a proof of work. They just kind of rotate around. If there are, say, 100 validators divided into 10 groups of 10, they just rotate to each group, and they just rotate up among the 10 groups, and they all get a shot at validation, but they all have uh, put a stake up there. Of 75% of Polkadot is staked. So it's um, you got a lot of money on the line, so you're going to want to validate correctly. So that was his, um, his vision, and uh, with Web 3.0, he's, he's hoping to, uh, to, to, to change the world. And, um, you know, you focus on the transaction fees. Polkadot transaction fees are extremely low. Uh, they're not high like they are in Ethereum. Now, what he did, he, he also found, in addition to Polkadot, he found a, a test network, Kusama. Because of Polkadot, you want you want to have everything. Uh, you want to have it stable. You want to you want to develop it slowly. But but he wanted a network where you, a test network where you could try things quickly. They might break. There are no guarantees. So he created Kusama as a test network, as a development as a kind of a development environment for Polkadot. So people could put things into Kusama, they could try them out, then once they have proof of principle established, the code runs, they could port it over to Polkadot. Now, he was the guy that actually wrote the Ethereum code. I think he is thinking through this extremely well. Uh, I don't know about the whole Web3 thing. We'll, we'll talk about that later. He speaks Italian. Uh, he, he also speaks some French and Spanish. When he gets time, he likes to do photography. He's proficient in Taekwondo, and to take the hedge off, edge off, he likes to, to snowboard. He's an interesting guy. He's driven to change the world. So there you go. Everything you wanted to know about uh, Gavin James Wood, co-founder of Ethereum, founder of creator of Polkadot, and co-founder of the Web3 Foundation. So pour yourself a coffee and pull up a chair, and we join Doc in the Faculty Lounge. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity.
If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. Web 3, is it a hype or is it a hoax? That's the question. If you look if you look at the Silicon Valley blogs, there are people on both sides of that question. Now, Web 1.0 were static web pages. We had hyperlinks. You could go to, basically, you could look anything up on the web. You'd look around, and these were static web pages. You couldn't interact with them. Web 2.0 gave us interactive web pages where you could actually write down things, and you could communicate with the web page. Web 2.0 brought us social media. It brought us Amazon. It, um, and Web 2.0, much to the consternation of the tech world, centralized around a few big tech companies. We had Google, you know, we had Microsoft, we had Amazon, um, all out there in Silicon Valley or out there in the, in the West, uh, and people weren't, we had Apple, people were not happy with that over-centralization of, with a few companies, particularly uh, after the Snowden revelations. Now Web 3.0 is a distributed system where storage is everywhere. You know, um, people who use the web also provide storage. So the difference between an internet service provider and a user is like eliminated. You can be both a service provider, as well as a user. Uh, and trust is enforced with blockchain, which will just be baked into the system. You won't have to be an expert on blockchain to use it, but there will be an infrastructure of trust that it is built on. Now, Web 3.0 uh, might be termed the post-Snowden web, as, as where we're reimagining all the sorts of things that we'd want the web to do, but with a totally different model. Information in Web 3.0, according to uh, according to Gavin Wood, information we assume to be public, we publish. Information we agreed upon, uh, we place in a consensus ledger, like a blockchain. Information that we assume to be private is kept private and never revealed, unless we want to make it public by by selling it. Communication always takes place in encrypted channels, with only uh, pseudonymous identities at the endpoints. Never would anything be traceable on Web 3.0, such as IP addresses. It includes a system to mathematically enforce prior assumptions, since no government or organization can reasonably be trusted. So if a company says, we're going to keep your data private, there's actually software that makes certain they keep it private. And if they don't keep it private, uh, they're outed by the software. Now, Detractors. That's what this is what the detractors say. They said you're never going to get a totally decentralized system. That's just not going to happen. Uh, look what happened. Initially, the internet was decentralized, and then it became centralized against big players. Even in this new world of blockchain, you're going to have centralization. Look at the OpenSea's NFT marketplace. They're dominating blockchain technology now. They're huge, and so. Uh, the detractors say we're just going to replace one set of overlords for another. Now, the supporters of Web3 
contend that uh, we that we really can decentralize. We can decentralize computation, storage, personal data, et cetera, et cetera, using cryptocurrency to pay for the services. It would be we would have this this blockchain infrastructure. And if anybody wants to use your data or they want to use your computer, there's a way to be paid for that. So individuals could actually make money by connecting to the internet and having a big computer that they would maintain, and they could actually make money by providing storage. So they're saying the incentive of being paid through crypto is, is gonna make a distributed network feasible. Now, according to uh, Gavin Woods, the, it'll be a gradual transition. Uh, web 2.0 will might use some Web 3.0 backends, but eventually it will be, it will be uh, implemented. And he believes, Gavin believes that it will eventually dominate the world and that the big tech guys are gone. Now, this is really a bit altruistic. What, what do you think of it? Uh, well, the, the thing is how, you know, they're going to have to take the geekery out of it the way they did, for example, with HTTPS uh, stuff where you don't even realize you're using a different uh, uh, way of, of connecting to your websites now. Um because, you know, that's a lot of choices to make. Me having to decide every time, oh, this is going to be private, this is going to be shared on a consensus basis, this is public. And then the whole idea of, like, you know, the, the transactions, they have to somehow be so incorporated into the system that you're just one click, you know. So that's, to me right now, when you say it like this, theoretically, it sounds like a lot of choices that individuals have to make that they may not be prepared, that seem burdensome to them. Whereas at some points, a lot of this has to slide sort of into an automatic mode where the interface is clear for the average consumer. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. But this is how all technology evolves. We Like when the Internet first came out, I was loading my own TCP IP protocol stack. I had to download it, and um, uh, I, they called, it was called Winsock. So I, w I had to install Winsock to get on the Internet to install all the tools. And, I mean, you had to be really geeky to get on the Internet. Now... It's just, you know, the, the protocol stack is just baked into the, uh, to the operating system. The user doesn't even know what's going on when they, um, when they connect to the Internet. And then when we had this, this encrypted data thing, secure socket layer, that's using public-private um, key encryption. Well, uh, that's kind of complicated to set up. But now your browser just does this, as you said, their HTTPS secure socket layer. And you're implementing an encrypted data stream using public-private key, but you don't even know it. You, no, you and, and see the, that little lock on the browser. Right. You're, right. You see the little symbol which you start looking past. And, yeah. and the, the browser is doing so much work for you and making decisions for the appropriate decisions for you. So what, what may happen will be if, when you're on the blockchain, you just might see a little chain and, uh, and you'll click on it and you, you go to a, you go to a place. So so if, if somebody could just. Uh, OK, so let, let's just see what, what would be the use case for this really working. Suppose somebody could buy a, a little larger computer and maybe have a larger uh, hard drive in their home and they make, uh, you know, they make an extra hundred bucks a month uh, on uh, in crypto because they're they're sharing that storage. So can the economic incentives be sufficient to make distributed storage and distributed computation realistic? And that's really the question. Or is the general trend of like centralization in data centers going to prevail? And uh, the old Web 2.0 hierarchy, you know, the, the, the Web 2.0 overlords do not like Web 3.0. And uh, and the and the new 
techie guys are, um, are, are really pushing it. I think we'll probably have something somewhere in between, really. I, I, I think we'll probably have a combination of data centers and maybe some personal uh, storage. <clears throat> Already, OpenSeas, for instance, is selling server space to people who would like to participate in Web3, but have, but have their computational power hosted in a data center. So maybe maybe we see we'll see something like that. I mean, see, you'd, you'd still own your your data on your server, but it might be hosted centrally. But that's a really, really great, how. yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, that that, that kind of making it consumer friendly, like they are mm-hmm. here. Oh, here's a service we're offering you, and it's actually this new decentralized web. But you don't even have to think that much about that fact if you don't want to. That's right. Yeah. So this so what we have here is an exciting technology that's going to transform. Uh, the world as much as the internet did, and we have evolving standards, and we don't have yet the killer apps that are just going to make it go. So people are imagining what could be. So I think the next 20 years is going to be pretty exciting. So there you go, Web3 Foundation. You can go there and look at look at the Web3 Foundation. It's uh, it's it, it's it's a great vision. I think Gavin uh, Wood is. Uh, is a visionary. He's a bit idealistic, uh, but hopefully, some of his vision is going to come to pass. Yes, Doc. We're going to. Uh, you'll tell us how we can learn about blockchains in a moment, but we'll take one last break here on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Let's talk about the website of the week. It's actually a massive open online course, a MOOC, M-O-O-C. It's the Web3 Blockchain Fundamentals. It's actually a great course. It's, it's a course for beginners, really. And it is blockchain for beginners. It takes you from the definition of money, what it takes to have a you know, stable monetary supply, and goes all the way through the evolution of the, block, the, the core concepts of the blockchain. And it's uh, blockchain for beginners. It teaches blockchain from the very beginning all the way up 
to the point where you can maybe, if you want, build your own blockchain. The course is led by Bill, Bill Laboon, Web3 Foundation's technical education lead. He starts with the fundamentals. What is a blockchain? How is it stored? What are the different algorithms and protocols that are used on the blockchain? What's the history of blockchain technology? And it goes from absolutely zero, uh, uh, with assumes zero knowledge in blockchain or cryptology, and it goes all the way up to showing you how to produce actual products on the blockchain. You said it. So, it actually goes even farther back. You said the first episode is, what is money? Yes. <laughs> it's, so. it's really interesting. Even the concept of money took a long time to evolve, you know, you know, evolve. Yeah. Um, you know, and it goes through shells and wampum and... You know, we've we've had a lot of different takes on money, right. and so it it goes back to the to the basics. So you can, um, I tell you, I love this class. It's it's twenty thirty minute lectures. So you could really, if you just if you just if you just you know blow through the morning, you could do that in ten hours. Really, um, if if you just wanted to spend the entire day doing it. So you could actually get through this thing fairly quickly. What you want to do is Google Web three blockchain fundamentals MOOC. M-O-O-C, and, and you'll, you'll, you'll find it. Um, uh, I'll also have a link to the, uh, to the, uh, to the website uh, on the, when, we, when we post the show outline there at techtalk.stratford.edu on Monday. See, now this is the perfect marriage of Web 2.0 and 3.0 right there. You have to use a 2.0 device, Google, to find out how to work Web 3.0. That's exactly right. So that's, there we are. We're already a, in that hybrid phase right there. That's an interesting. Uh, that's an interesting observation. Let Let's talk about the fifteenth anniversary of the iPhone. Happy it's birthday! Like a big, happy birthday, January 9th, two thousand and seven. Steve Jobs announced the iPhone. It was a big uh, a big day. I still remember that announcement. Now the iPhone made a number of things really easy that were previously the province of techies. You could do mobile social networking. You could do image sharing. It had great, uh, uh, great applications, uh, cellular uh, applications. It, it transformed how we used our devices, how we interact with friends and how we could see the world. Uh, and there was a shift with the iPhone. There was a shift of feeling where we all of a sudden felt like we were in control of our phones. Um, and that, was, that shift in feeling was very intentional on the part of Steve Jobs and Apple. But now... As it's evolved, two companies pretty much control all mobile platforms in the world, Apple and Google. Uh, and two manufacturers, Apple and Samsung, sell the majority of phones. Now, there are three platforms that have become dominant here, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. They manage most of our social discourse. Now, the iPhone, if you think back on it, they brought in the era of big tech. Uh, where big tech had huge, huge power. Now, back before the iPhone, I don't know if you remember it, the carriers dictated a lot of the software that was preloaded on the phones. I mean, the carriers owned the phone in their mind. They could put anything they wanted. They would. And there were a lot of carriers back then, and that meant there was a lot of diversity and decentralization. Apple broke the carrier control over the software in the consumer's favor. And they then could load onto their phone, uh, Google, uh, you know, they, they could load on whatever they wanted to. So Google, you know, Apple could, would, could load on the Safari browser and they could use Google as a search engine. Whatever they wanted to do, they, they could do. And over time, 
this shift away from the uh, diversity of the telcos to big tech, um, you know, really made big tech even bigger. Now, uh, now what really happened then when, when uh, you know, when 3G came out, uh, Apple introduced the App Store. Now, before the App Store, people bought relatively few apps, and they would buy them from independent stores. There weren't a lot of these apps around. But when the App Store came out, you'd get all your apps from Apple. Or if you had an Android phone, you'd get all your apps from Google. So that gave them absolute control over what apps would be displayed on the phone. And, uh, you know, people liked it. You had a good, clean interface. Actually, having this ecosystem of just two phones was great for developers. They could focus on making money with the App Store, and they could just write, just write um you know, apps for a particular phone. They there were only two phones. They didn't they didn't have all this diversity. It made it really great for developers, and developers made a lot of money developing this. But you see, it centralized the power in the hands of a few, and it was uh, I, uh, you know, it's it's one of the unintended consequences. Now, what we're trying to do with Web three is trying to reverse some of that, trying to. Get, get a more distributed uh, system. Even Apple realizes that this is not so good. Even Apple is now saying, look, the data on your phone, you own the data. They're trying to set up a permission structure so that companies just can't get at your data. So now if, if anybody is, um, is you know, trying to sneak your data, Apple will notify you and let you know that uh, that's going to happen. And so Apple is trying to pull this back a bit. They say we're not in the in the business of like stealing your data like Facebook. And I and I'll tell you the whole thing with Apple after they um, did that Facebook revenue went down quite a bit. Um, listen, we love your emails. Email us at uh, techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And go to the Stratford University website www.stratford.edu. Check out our programs and in computer science, software engineering, health sciences, culinary arts, business, accounting, and tell them that you've heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.